Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. Like a number of you over the past few weeks, I have been watching and making my way through the new Beatles documentary. Peter Jackson of Lord of the Rings fame took over uh, hundreds and hundreds of hours as the Beatles were recording uh, what would eventually become Let It Be and has edited it into three rather long two to three hour episodes chronicling this time in the life of the band. It can be slow at times, but if you're a fan of the Beatles, it's really really interesting. Or in my case, if you were the child of big Beatles fans, it's still really, really interesting. It's going through the last three weeks leading up to their final performance as a band. And as it unfolds, as this documentary sort of plays out, what we're really seeing as it goes is the breaking up of the Beatles the falling apart of the band. John Lennon is slowly distancing himself from the band. And at one point, George Harrison quits and literally goes home. He he leaves London and goes back to Liverpool and they have to go and get him. And at the same time, Paul is nitpicking everyone else's plane. All the while that this is happening, cameras are running. There are people watching and standing over the shoulders of the Beatles, these producers and managers who stand to make a lot of money are encouraging them to keep going, stay together, figure it out, try and hold it together. And then in the midst of all of this chaos and all of these egos, there's Ringo. Ringo just seems happy to be there. You know, last week, I was talking with Jason um, about Ringo's technical skill as a drummer. And Jason pointed out to me that that Ringo always always served the song. He never showed off his skills. And as I watched the final part of the documentary this week, after hearing Jason tell me that, I was like, oh, I can totally see that. Ringo was the only Beatle at this point not trying to make everything about him. And it's natural for us to kind of look at this, watch this, and maybe throw some stones at at Paul or John or George. But how many times do we do the same thing? How many times if the documentary was about our life, would we sort of find ourselves much more like Paul and John than Ringo? We all have an internal dialogue, a a narration of events going on all around our lives. And these stories, these stories that we tell ourselves, who is the hero? In the story that plays out in your mind, who's the lead character? There's something about the way that sin has twisted our hearts and twisted this world, especially in our current era of expressive individualism that compels us to try to center every story on ourselves. It's become second nature to us. I know that this is true of me, many of you probably as well. Well, it's not really second nature, is it? 
It's almost as if it's first nature. It goes deeper than even a habit that we have picking up. Our fallen hearts twist every narrative to be about us. And this relates to Advent in some significant ways. Advent isn't long Christmas. Advent isn't an excuse for us to start celebrating Christmas just as soon as Thanksgiving is over. Advent isn't made-for-TV Hallmark movies, which start on December 1st and run through the 24th, which they'll probably keep playing after the 24th because apparently they make a lot of money. No, no, no. Advent's not long Christmas. It's a time of hope, a time of anticipation. But here's where our hearts swindle us. As we enter into this time of hope and expectation, we want to center Advent around our pain. We want to center Advent around our loss, our unfulfilled desires. And while Advent is a season that reminds us of the sorrows that accompany our lives, whether we're Christians or not, it's a reminder more so that the solution and the whole story is not about us. Advent is meant to take our eyes off of ourselves and lift them up to the skies, lift them up to expectantly wait for rescue that is to come. And so long as we center the story on ourselves, so long as we make Advent about us and our stuff, we can't see the light. And when we can't see the light, we can't experience the life-changing power of the gospel. John's prologue, which we began last week, is a place where we see all of this playing out. So I'd ask if you are able, would you please stand? I'm going to read John 1, and I'm going to read verses 6 through 13. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. True light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. There was ever a character in the Bible who had the idea of centering his life and identity on Christ and not himself, it certainly was John the baptizer. John's most famous line is, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. But his second most famous line is what? He must increase and I must decrease. When we think of John, we think of that. John's whole point was to point to Jesus. And that's exactly what he did. But the question that struck me this week is, why does John, the gospel writer, kind of interrupt his flow? 
He was, he was going and he was talking about Jesus and he is the light of life. He is the, the one who is bringing us this. And then he kind of stops and goes, oh, by the way, there's John. Why does John, the gospel writer, interrupt his tale of Jesus to tell us about John the baptizer? I mean, if you took verses 6, 7, and 8 out, there's still like a pretty good flow. There's still a pretty good sort of line that John's doing. But what John, the gospel writer, knew is that John the baptizer played an important part in the story of Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament, again and again, it was prophesied that before the Messiah came, there would come a forerunner. There would come someone who would go before him saying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. At least that's the Bible version that I grew up with as a child. That's the way I remember it. And it sounds like a herald, doesn't it? Prepare ye the way of the Lord. It sounds like somebody who is making the way for a king, which exactly what John was doing. John was, as the Bible says here, a witness to who Jesus was. Now, when we think of witness, we're thinking of somebody who is sitting in the courtroom who's being interrogated, who's being asked questions. But John wasn't that. John was something else. John was somebody who was pointing constantly at the darkness and saying, that's not it. That's not what should be. And then he was constantly pointing to Jesus and saying, there's the light. Think of every time John opened his mouth. He, he had a lot to say about darkness. The Pharisees and Sadducees show up one day to one of John's revivals and he's down by the river and he's baptizing people and he's, and he's preaching. And the Pharisees and Sadducees show up and does he say, hi, I'm John, it's nice to meet you. What's your name? No. Does he say, oh, it's good to see you guys? Also, no. No, he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is coming? I think that maybe could be a way that we uh, introduce ourselves to new visitors here at City Church. (laughs) You know, just, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the wrath that is coming? Parking is on the table over there. Right? John is not soft-pedaling anything. When he sees darkness, he says so. And it ends up costing him his life. Because Herod had married someone he shouldn't have, his, his brother's wife, his, his all sorts of soap opera drama, and John called him out on it. And so John lost his head over it. John never stopped pointing out the darkness, and he never stopped pointing out the light. He pointed to Jesus with every one of his breaths. John the baptizer's reason for his existence, his raison d'etre, the whole thing about John was pointing to Jesus. John shows us what a life looks like when our, when our eyes are lifted up off of ourselves and onto the glory of Jesus. John chose a hard life. I mean, he's famously eating wild food. He's famously wearing clothes that are uncomfortable, but he never seems unhappy about it. He never seems resentful. John always seems to turn attention off of himself and on to Jesus. In fact, the, the Galilee disciples of Jesus, James and John and Peter, 
it seems that at least some of them were disciples of John, who John said, go follow Jesus, not me. I mean, think of the PR. I mean, those are some pretty heavy hitting guys. That was quite the lineup. And John says, no, no, go with Jesus. Stop following me. Start following him. He's showing us a different way to be human, a different way to follow Jesus. John the baptizer's way is all about taking our eyes off of ourselves and lifting them up to Jesus. It's about forgetting ourselves as we remember Jesus. And as we walk through Advent, the goal is not to make a list of all of the woes around us and sort of wallow in it. It's not like, okay, in Lent, I'll be super sad about all the stuff that's wrong with me. And then in Advent, I'll be super sad about all the stuff that's wrong with the world. (sighs) The goal of Advent is not to just sit there doom scrolling and lamenting at the ways that we have it bad. The point of Advent is to say that my hope comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The point of Advent is to lift up our eyes. He is the one who will make every right wrong and wipe away every tear. He is the one who will unravel every story and weave all of the regret and fear that we bring into the tapestry of his glory. And that's what we need to believe this Advent. That's what we bear witness to. And to be frank, that's why we throw so many parties during Advent here at City Church. No matter what the stories of our year have been, insert 2020, 2021 jokes here. No matter what that story has been for us, greater is the hope that we have in Jesus than the pain that we've experienced in 2021. Advent tells us that one day all of the sad things will come untrue. Advent tells us that dawn has broken. A new light shines now down on us. We have this light and we can share this light with everyone that we meet because this light isn't just for us. The light of the world came to shine on everyone. John, the gospel writer, picks this up in verse 9. He picks up the thread of Jesus being light and life. The one who is in the beginning, the one who has made the world now lives in it. We're going to get deeper into that idea next week. But as we read through this, John wants to see that despite the fact that Jesus made the world and then came into the world, the world did not receive him. And John does this in his kind of typical poetic way with two statements that build on each other. Jesus made the entirety of the human world. Jesus set the groundwork and created every human who has ever been. He created the whole world. And when he came into the world, the world did not receive him. And if that's not bad enough, if that's not it, He also drills deeper and says that Jesus came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. He came to God's chosen people, Israel, the ones who had the law, the ones who were were constantly receiving the words of the prophets. They had the temple, they had all the promises of God and they missed it. 
This isn't a new idea. If you've read the Bible, especially the New Testament, the idea that, that the people of Israel missed Jesus isn't new for you or for me. But have you ever considered the why in there? Why is it that the world missed that its creator had come? Why is it that Israel missed that their Messiah had come? It's because you have to believe in the light in order to see it. And they did not. It's like this. Have you ever kind of finished up your nightly routines? You start the dishwasher. You make sure there's no clothes in the dryer. You take the dog outside. You brush your teeth. And then you settle into bed. And you pull your covers up. And then you ask yourself this question. Why is it lighter in my room than it normally is? And then you look at your window and you realize that you have left your outside floodlights on. And you have a choice. Do you get up? Do you, do you get up and walk to wherever that light switch is or, and turn the light off? Or you just kind of go, eh, it's one night. I'm sure they're not shining in the neighbor's house. I'm going to be all right. We'll just, we'll just let it ride for tonight. That light has forced a choice on you. Once you realize that there is light in your yard, you have to decide whether or not to turn the light off or not. Now, that's a pretty low consequence decision. It's probably going to cost you 25, maybe 35 cents in your power bill next month. It's a pretty low cost decision. But the same is true of what happens when the light of God shines on us. We have to make a choice about it. Because when the light of Jesus shines on you, it points out our darkness. And we don't like that. We don't like that very much. Do we allow that light to draw us out of the darkness? Do we confess our sins or do we hide? Do we run away from the light and hide? In Daily Prayer Project this week, we were also read the story of Adam and Eve. And after they had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then they heard God walking through the garden, what did Adam and Eve do? They ran and they hid. That is our natural bent. Literally as old as sin is our propensity to hide from the light that exposes our sin. And yet John is offering us a different narrative. He says, yes, light is painful. Yes, it is hard when you walk into bright light after being in darkness. When you, I don't know, say, walk out of a dimly lit theater and into the noonday sun of Florida. Light is difficult. And light came into the world in the person of Jesus, a light which any could see, but some chose to reject it. But not everyone. Not everyone chose to reject it. John follows his comments about this rejection with the beauty of what happens when we receive Jesus. To everyone who receives Jesus, which John tells us is an act of faith, that believing in his name 
is the way that this happens, a gift is given. When we place our full faith and trust in Jesus, we are given the right to become the children of God. What a privilege that God takes rebels and adopts them into his family. What a truth that the children of God are not those who do not sin, that the children of God are not those who sin a little less than everybody else, but rather vagabonds, the scum of the earth, cleaned by the blood of the lamb, outsiders, that the children of God are all the poor and powerless, that the greedy and unkind are brought together in a new sort of family a family centered on the belief that all that is true and good and beautiful comes from the hand of Jesus. Church, this is us. Beloved, this is every church that exists in the true name of Jesus. And how can this beauty come into our lives? Not by our will, not by our power, only by the will and power of God. John says that our new birth is not the result of blood. Actually, he says bloods, um, which is kind of strange, and it sounds awful to say that in English, uh, but he's probably talking about the different bloodlines. You're, it's not about your faith that your parents had. It's not about your heritage and what your last name is. No, this is about God being the one who gives us new birth. And it says, not by our will or by our power, only by the power of of God. That's where this new birth and this new life comes from. It's entirely an act of God. Now I know, I know that when I talk talk about our lives and our salvation being entirely an act of God, there are some of you who bristle, who say, oh yeah, yeah, there goes Justin again. You know, be, be talking about Calvinism and predestination. Well, I mean, yeah, Presbyterian minister, guilty as charged. But there is in this an Advent beauty at work. This story isn't ultimately about us. Remember where we began? Advent is about isn't about us. It's about Jesus. And even our new birth and our salvation and our relationship to God is not about us. It's an act of the God of heavens, the creator himself who made all life, reaching down and giving us new spiritual life. This is a story of the glory of God. This is a tale of the evil in our hearts being rooted out by the true hero, This is a story of God who is making all things new and starting that making all things new with your heart and mine. Like the Christmas carol says, light and life to all he brings as we make our way through this season of Advent. Let's remember that the one who made the world stepped into it. He faced the rejection of those he loved, but he also received 
all of those who believed in him. He gave them a new identity as the children of God. He opened their hearts so they could even begin the process so that they could become his special and prized possession. The God who gave new birth to his people will one day give new birth to all of the earth. The change that has begun in our hearts will one day flourish until it covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. May that give us hope. May that peace flow from us into everyone we meet this Advent. May his story of truth and goodness and beauty be the story that our hearts are centered on and our lives are driven by. Let's pray.